Hello, my friends, and welcome to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, it is great to have you around today. Um, Hey, we're going into some new stuff this week. This is episode number 27, and it is the first week of a three-week series, and I will tell you about that in a moment. But before I do, um, I am beaming with joy because I got an email today from the advisor at my school who said that my dissertation, okay, get ready, drum roll, drum roll please, my dissertation is defense ready. It is ready for defense. So what that means is that I go up to New York um, in March, I go in front of a board, I present my dissertation to these people, they ask me 30 minutes worth of questions, they dismiss me from the room, they talk about me, they talk about the project, they talk about the dissertation, they talk about how I've grown over the last three years, hopefully. Then they call me back in and they say either yay or nay. Yes, we'll see you at graduation. Uh, no, it's got some more work to do. Come back in a week um, and try it again. Or no, it's got a lot of work to do. Rewrite the whole thing and we'll see you next year sometime. So I'm not anticipating anything bad happening. I think it's going to be great. I'm fairly confident with it. My advisor seemed confident with it. Um, the school really just wants to see you succeed and do well. Uh, so I think it will be an encouraging time. I am looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but thank you. Thank you all so much. I know a lot of you have been listening to this, uh, following me in this journey, even my older podcasts I used to have uh, back when I started this program. Uh, a lot of you people were there with me then, uh, rooting for me, supporting me, encouraging me. So thank you uh, so much for your Uh, friendship, your encouragement, your support. It does mean uh, the world to me. So, but this is episode number 27. And uh, like I said, the first uh, episode, the first week in a three-week series uh, that I am calling Burn Those Books. Burn Those Books, where uh, I'm going to be sharing a little bit about the three books that have made the biggest impact on me in 2018. Okay, so the three books that have made the biggest impact on me personally in 2018, so last year. Now, as some of you know, I'm like an avid, ridiculous reader, like insane. People who work with me, I work at the Apple store in the mall. I clock out for my lunch. I grab my books. I get a cup of coffee. I go in the mall. I sit with a book and a highlighter, and I read. Uh, I come home at night before I go to bed. I read. I get up in the morning before Jordan wakes up. I read. I get to work a little bit early. I read, right? That's just what I do. Like my brain is like always going. Uh, my head is always in a book. Um, so that's just who I am. You know, it's what I do. It's part of my my lovely charm, I guess you can say. But like right now in front of me to the left of my computer, I have a stack, I just counted them, of 19 different books uh, that I will read probably over the course of the next few months. And some of them are personal reads. Others are books written by people that I'll be bringing onto the podcast later, later this year. Um, I usually have a goal of reading 50 books a year. Uh, one year I read 90. In 2020, like let's shoot for the stars. Maybe next year I'd like to maybe hit 100. We'll see. Uh, but so many great books. I just love to read. Uh, I've said that a thousand times already, but I do. It's just it's just what I am. It's who I am. It's what I do. I mean, it's, it's why I went for a doctoral degree, right? Because you have more reading to do and more writing and things that I, I really enjoy. So anyways, today I want to talk to you about uh, a book that my friend... Brian McLaren wrote called The Great Spiritual Migration. I call him my friend because he was on the podcast earlier this year um, in January. And uh, he's someone that I have a great amount of respect for and someone I admire uh, very deeply. 
and he's written a, a bunch of books. I think they're all amazing. Um, and especially if you come from a more conservative background like I did, um, these books will stretch you, they will challenge you, and they will really tick you off. Uh, but I think that's how we learn. You know, that's how we grow. It's how we evolve, not by reading stuff that we already 100% agree with and run board with, and it just reiterates what we already think and believe and think that we know. But instead, you know, I think we learn by encountering new stuff that makes us think, right? Stuff that makes us maybe even kind of mad. We might end up disagreeing. We might end up never reading the book again. We might throw it across the room. We might burn it, right? But, but reading it with an open mind... Uh, to understand the author, where the author is coming from, their point of view, instead of reading it just to defend our own position, uh, will have made us think about what we believe, why we believe it, and I think we'll be better off knowing that there are other people in the world who think differently than we do. Um, they're coming from a completely different angle than we are, and they're pretty decent human beings, right? I think, I think it's just helpful to know that you can disagree with somebody, and if somebody can have a different view than you, but that doesn't have to mean that you don't like him, you know, that you guys are enemies or anything like, like that. So I think that, again, reading books that might make you mad um, opens up your horizon a little bit, even if you want to burn the book. So like I said, McLaren's one of my favorite authors. This is probably, I would say, like one of his most important books, maybe one you'd want to burn, whatever. His premise, in short, is that uh, Christianity is in need of a great spiritual migration. Now, from the back of the book, uh, he says that a migration he envisions is one where instead of focusing on beliefs, we focus on love. Instead of seeing God as a violent, supreme being, we see God as a divine spirit who is working to renew the world. Instead of identifying ourselves with an organized religion, we identify as people who are following Jesus in our dedication to heal the planet, uh, build peace, and work for the good of all. So, Rather than just like summarize the book, because you can go online and you can read about it, I think you can download it for fairly cheap on Kindle, uh, but I just want to share with you one piece from the book that impacted me. Uh, maybe tell you how I've been trying to apply it to my life, and uh, also what we're doing here at the What If Project, so kind of the influence it's had on me um, in my life and also on this project. So John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 Jesus uh, stages a protest of sorts in the temple. Uh, The Passover was approaching, and as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and approached the temple, he saw like these cattle, you know, these sheep and these doves, various kinds of animals. They're being sold so that people who are traveling to the temple would have something to offer as a sacrifice. Now, a quick word about sacrifice. Uh, There are many angles to sacrifice, many different things you could say and many different reasons as to why it was such a big part of uh, ancient Judaism as well as other religions. So I want to say off the bat, like this is by no means an exhaustive explanation of sacrifice. And I tell you that because if you're a Bible nerd, uh, you're a scholar, whatever, I realize I'm barely doing the topic justice. Okay, I realize that there is a whole lot more uh, to it than what I'm about to share. I'm like barely scratching the surface. I get it. Uh, So if I don't say something that you wish I would say, uh, don't email me hate mail, okay? Thank you. I love you. In essence, though, uh, the religious law taught that at least one of the reasons why sacrifice was needed was because God is angry at human sin, right? Humans sin, and sin makes God mad. And so in order to appease God's anger, 
sacrifices needed to be made, and blood had to be shed. But in order to have something to sacrifice, the people who are traveling from afar to visit the temple in Jerusalem, they had to come with some money so that they could purchase an animal in the temple uh, whose blood could be shed on their behalf to appease God's anger, so to speak. Now, scholars say that doves were likely lesser in price and probably therefore more affordable. Cattle were probably uh, for people who had a little bit more to spend. But on the surface, it seems to have been like a fairly budget-friendly place where like everyone was able to make a purchase and make a sacrifice, or at least expected to do so. And here in the story, in, in John, is where Jesus kind of enters the picture. He moves into the temple, and John says he sees that the animals are being sold. He takes some, some rope, and he braids this rope into a whip. And he goes in the temple, and he drives the animals, and all of the animal sellers, out of the temple, flips over their tables, and scatters their money. This is Jesus we're talking about, right? The calm, cool, collected guy makes a whip. Now, when you make a whip, like it's not like you just, he didn't like just pick up a whip already made. He went and found some rope and thought to himself, I'm going to find some rope and I'm going to make a whip. I'm going to go in that temple and I'm going to take care of some business. Like this was thought out, right? This was plotted. And so he grabs this rope. He makes this whip. He goes in, scatters the money, throws everybody out. Uh, it's a pretty well-known story. You've probably heard about it, maybe seen a picture, whatever. Um, and in seminary, I was taught that part of the reason why Jesus did this was because he was angry at the prices that the people were being charged for sacrifices. And he was outraged for the poor people who might have desired to make a sacrifice, but they wouldn't have been able to afford even the cheapest of animals. And so my professors and the books I was reading taught me that if the prices were cheaper and maybe the animals were even free, well, then Jesus probably wouldn't have been very upset. And more importantly, though, uh, this event, they said, foreshadowed a much bigger event, uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, where after his death, after his resurrection, sacrifice would have cost everything for him, but nothing for us. Uh, except for us to simply believe in him, quote, and quote, ask him into our hearts, thus appeasing God's anger, uh, much like the blood of the dove or the cattle in John chapter 2. So the blood of the son would cover us uh, forever instead of the blood of an animal um, each and every time we go before God. So I remember in one sermon uh, I preached ah, it was about 10 years ago at the church I used to pastor, and I said something like this. I said he flipped over the wooden tables in the temple because he believed that sacrifice should be available to everyone. And his death on the wooden cross just a few years later made that a reality. So kind of pitted the wooden cross against the wooden table and kind of talked about how the wooden table foreshadowed the wooden cross. I got a lot of oohs and ahs from the crowd because, it, I mean, I, I don't want to brag, but that is some pretty preaching. Uh, but all that to say... I'm not too sure I believe anything like that anymore, to be honest with you. Uh, not to go down like a, a rabbit hole about the atonement and, you know, why Jesus died on the cross, but like every day and every time I read my Bible, uh, I am becoming like increasingly less and less and less convinced that Jesus died on the cross simply to appease God's wrath against my sin so that by believing in him, I can escape some sort of harsh eternal torture and go to heaven when I die instead of hell 
or I would suffer for all of eternity. Like, I just don't believe that. I used to. I used to hold on to that. I used to have Bible verses memorized where I could defend that position, blindfolded, standing on my head with my eyes, I don't know, taped shut, whatever. I just don't believe it anymore. And it's because I just don't see that in the life and the words of Jesus. Right? Like, if Jesus is the exact representation of God, then let's be honest, Jesus did a pretty lousy job at representing a God who was sending a large part of the human population to hell for believing the wrong things. Like, let's just be honest, right? Like, he just didn't do a very good job at representing that kind of God. Uh, And I'll talk more about that some other time. But for now, kind of the question I want to throw out there is, is is what if, right? This is the what if project. So, So what if, by flipping over the tables in the temple, driving out the animal sellers, what if Jesus was getting at something different than just being upset that the animals cost too much money? Like, what if Jesus wasn't just protesting the cost of the sacrifices, but what if he was protesting the entire sacrificial system and everything that it represented? Like, what if he was protesting the long-held idea that many people still hold on to today, mind you, that God is angry, that God is vengeful, that God is full of wrath against humanity and our sin, and his wrath is so serious and so severe and so big and so detrimental that it needs to be appeased with blood. Right? McLaren says in the book, perhaps Jesus is overturning that belief right along with the cashier's tables, right along with the whole religious system built on top of it. And so what if by flipping over the tables, driving out the animals that were to be used for sacrifice, what if Jesus was really saying, hey, there's no need for any of this because God isn't full of wrath. God isn't angry and God doesn't need a blood sacrifice in order to be a peace. He's not a monster, right? He never needed that and he never will need it. Now, if you haven't already thrown your computer out the window uh, or your phone, uh, props to you, okay? But know that if this really is what Jesus was getting at, he wasn't the first one to make an effort to drive this point home. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see many of the prophets saying the very same thing. Hosea chapter 6 says that God desires compassion, not sacrifice. Uh, The first two chapters of Isaiah says that God found the sacrifices of the people disgusting because they were also they weren't also seeking justice for the oppressed they're just offering these sacrifices while neglecting the poor and the oppressed around them and that made God angry. Psalm 51 says that God takes no pleasure in sacrifice but in a contrite heart and truth in the innermost being. And so if Jesus really was making the point that God isn't angry and therefore doesn't need sacrifices to take that anger away he was doing so in the footsteps of generations of prophets that had already gone before him. You see, the reality is that Glenn on the What If Project podcast is not the first one to say something like this. Uh, Brian McLaren in his book, The Great Spiritual Migration, not the first one to say this, and neither was Jesus, but, but rather generations of prophets challenged the sacrificial system. Generations of prophets spoke out against the temple practices. Uh, Generations of prophets declared that God isn't angry like everyone assumes he is. Uh, In the church, one of the most tightly held beliefs is that God is angry at human sin. 
and needs to punish it. And so Jesus came and he became the ultimate blood sacrifice so that by believing in him, uh, God's wrath could be satisfied, putting us back into God's good graces. When God sees you and you believe in Jesus, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of his son and that makes God smile. Now, in the world of theology, we call that penal substitutionary atonement theory. Uh, Again, penal substitutionary atonement theory. And in North America, uh, this theory makes up a, a, a pretty large part of the landscape of the evangelical church, uh, so much so that those who hold it to hold something that's even a little bit different or maybe opposite are often labeled um, as a heretic, right? a heretic, a wolf, uh, one who has gone astray, something like that. But here's something to think about. Um, again, back to the book, McLaren says, if Jesus dared to side with the prophetic tradition and suffer the wrath of the priestly establishment, then shouldn't his followers do the same when necessary? In other words, if Jesus challenged the religious leaders of his day and stood in the footsteps of the ancient prophets to declare that God isn't angry, God's not full of wrath, God isn't waiting to strike humanity down, God isn't looking for a blood sacrifice, God is not a monster, and if Jesus was put to death, at least partly because of those declarations, then shouldn't we, as Jesus' followers, be challenged to declare the same? To pronounce what the prophets of long ago pronounced, that God isn't angry. He never was angry. And, and to follow his lead in building a model of God's kingdom on earth that doesn't have sacrifice to a wrathful, angry God at its foundation, but as a dedication to a God who gives love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, inclusion to all people, not only at its foundation, but at its very core, running deeply through its DNA. Sounds amazing, right? But, but here's the thing. I love this idea. But what I've learned, especially over this last year, is that this way of thinking or being in the world cannot be argued into existence, right? It cannot be debated into a reality. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, last year, I posted something along these lines on Facebook, uh, uh, the kind of same stuff we're talking about here. My ideas weren't really thought out, but they were kind of developing, growing. They're in that like evolution, very beginning stages of kind of changing the way I think. And I shared some things on Facebook about God not being angry, uh, not demanding a blood sacrifice. And to my surprise, like, dude, my Facebook page and my Facebook messenger was lit up with angry comments from church people. You're a heretic, somebody said. You know, I can't believe they let you preach. You just like to tickle people's ears with what they want to hear, whatever that means. Uh, I used to respect you. One dude called me a snowflake. Somebody said that I've lost my way. Like on and on this stuff went for maybe a handful of people. And I tried to respond, you know, sometimes nicely and sometimes with a little bit of sass uh, to my words. Uh, But some of the things I said, I wish I could take back. Other things I said, I wish I would have said with more sass in my words. Uh, But whatever the case may be, we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for hours, days, and then turned into like the next week. and, And finally, the bickering stopped. And when the smoke finally settled, and I had a moment to think about it, I realized that the system of God is angry Christianity isn't going to change because I can eloquently uh, describe or articulate a different or better way of believing and living. But rather, that system, that God is angry Christianity system, 
will begin to change and morph and evolve only because a group of people are willing to uh, live according to a different way and are thus you know, actively changing the world through their world, through their love, through their words, uh, their actions, their deeds, and bringing heaven a little bit closer to earth with every spoken word and every uh, loving deed. McLaren says this in his book. He says, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing one obsolete. And so if the existing model is God is angry Christianity, or God only welcomes, includes, and accepts those who believe the right things about Jesus Christianity, then the new model needs to be God isn't angry Christianity. Or God welcomes, includes, and accepts everyone everywhere, regardless of who they are, where they're from, and what they believe Christianity. And building that new kind of Christianity is not going to come by fighting against or trying to tear down the old one, but it will come by simply working to build the new one each and every day with loving words, graceful acts, moving inclusively throughout the world. And so honestly, like that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do anyway here at the What If Project. Um, I tweeted the other day and I said something like, the work I'm doing here is proving to be like really hard. Um, It's mentally hard, it is emotionally hard, it is spiritually hard, and it's relationally hard, you know, because I'm rethinking things I've always assumed to be true. Like, I'm not some kind of a moron who just picked up the Bible yesterday. Like, I've I've gone to a Christian school when I was a kid. Um, I went to Bible college for four years. Uh, I went to seminary, I got my master's for four years. I pastored two churches, I'm in a doctoral program, right? So I'm like rethinking things that I just have always assumed, as long as I can remember, to be true. And and I'm rereading things I've read a thousand times, but I'm coming to these new and quite radical conclusions. I'm letting go of things I've held close to my heart for a long time, and some relationships have ended as a result. Uh, Some harsh words have been said. And people who used to look up to me have told me, to my face, or at least through a screen, uh, that they now look down on me. And it's quite challenging and exhausting. But following in the footsteps of Jesus and the ancient prophets and challenging the status quo of longly held religious traditions, all in the name of giving the world a clearer picture of their creator, it's supposed to be hard, isn't it? Like, it's not supposed to be easy. And Jesus certainly didn't find it easy. The prophets didn't find it easy. Uh, It's not supposed to be easy. Uh, But even so, when I get an email or like I get a text message or a Facebook message or a tweet or a comment on the podcast that says, thank you for doing this. You know, thank you for saying this. Thank you for giving me the freedom, the space to explore, you know, what I feel, what I think, to ask what I'm asking. Thanks for creating a, a place that's loving and inclusive of even people like me. When I get a comment like that, Ah, man, when I hear those words, it just makes all the hard stuff, all the more. I'm just like, bring it on, pour it on, right? One comment like that makes it all worth it. And so here's the deal. Wherever you are today, whatever you've got going on, okay? Uh, Whatever you did last night, uh, whatever you will do tonight, regardless of the mistakes you've made, uh, the ways in which you've let people down, the ways in which you've let yourself down, Uh, the amount of drugs you've done, the amount of alcohol you've consumed, the ways in which you've rebelled, the amount of people that you've slept with, uh, the things you did that you wish you didn't do, 
uh, the things that you said that you wish you didn't say, uh, all the reasons that you have believed that God is mad at you, uh, disappointed in you, waiting to flip the switch that will send you to hell, uh, know today that God is not angry. And somebody needs to hear that, right? God is not angry. He never was. He never will be. His only motive and only feeling towards you and everyone that will come across your path today and forever is open arms, love, grace, and acceptance. God is not angry. Believing that, though, (laughs) is going to make a lot of other people angry. Let them be. Let them be angry. And you just keep moving forward, making the world a little bit more like heaven with your words, your actions, and your deeds. Everyone, everyone has a space forever reserved at the table of God. Much love to you, my friends. Uh, This was week number one of our three-part series, uh, Burn Those Books. Have a great day, and uh, I will see you on the interwebs later.